Welcome to the Omfit Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Taylor Pierce and I work as economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dennis Shen, macroeconomist and director of sovereign ratings at Scope Ratings based in Berlin, Germany. In this capacity, Dennis directs the credit rating agency's global sovereign outlook. He is the co-architect of the Carson Shen monetary policy rule. Dennis appears on television and frequently within print mediums, such as CNBC Europe, the Financial Times, and Reuters. He also contributes for the London School of Economics, having graduated from a degree in international development from LSE following his undergraduate studies at Cornell University in the US. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you very much for joining us. We have a very timely topic of discussion today revolving around China's economic relations with the US and Europe, given the global macroeconomic environment and geopolitical landscape. Thank you, and, and a good day. I'd like to start by setting the scene. So my first question is, though their relations were icy even prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, deterioration of China's relations with the West has certainly been exacerbated by the war. So can you start by giving us an overview of your perception of the current geopolitical landscape with reference to China? And what interests is China balancing at the international level, both political and economic? Thanks, indeed. And those are um, loaded questions in and of themselves. I think, first of all, important is um, I want to kind of make the point that probably from China's perspective, rather, that there has been and probably there still is today a degree of ongoing misunderstanding in terms of the positioning of the government or what the government really wants as far as uh, specifically in terms of the current zeitgeist and the the discussion around Russia and the positioning of different countries around this issue of Russia and the uh, raging war in in the Ukraine. That from China's perspective, I can only personally imagine that uh, there is no interest uh, in some of the Western commentary surrounding a new axis of autocracy based upon the political systems and the commonalities therein between that of the Russian state and, and, and China, and, and certainly dating back to the Cold War and the like. Nor is there interest in the similar um, description or, or moniker of an alliance of, of autocracies. Instead, the relationship with Russia for China has been and I imagine uh, still is today, although I think some of the promises of friendship probably, uh, of friendship that were made uh, during the Beijing Olympics earlier this year, there, there might be some level of reconsideration in terms of exactly how airtight some of that in fact is. But for China, that relationship with Russia um, has always been a partnership of convenience um, that there are certain facets um, in terms of uh, certainly in terms of political systems and uh, the, 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 the usual refrain about democracies and autocracies, is that there? Yes, uh, that, that's there to, to an extent. But in addition, it's simply about countries that are emerging, emerging economies and um, that have a common interest in terms of rivaling and or challenging the uh, post-Second World War, the U.S.-centered world order. And in that respect, even though the partnership with Russia is, let's say, important um, to China, otherwise, 
in terms of some of the positioning since the war escalated. Obviously, that would, China would not have gone out of its way to make such statements publicly in the, uh, given, given the international condemnation of the further invasion. But at the same time, China does not want to aggravate the West, does not want to polarize the world, even though it certainly supports a more multipolar world and a more China-centered world. It does not, in this period of transition, um, as we saw during the trade war uh, of the past years with the United States, it does not seek this, it does not want this, and in terms of uh, even the positioning with an ally and, and um, a, a country, a neighboring country that, the, that the China can play off of the West in Russia, it will not be leveraging that relationship with Russia if it were to compromise economic relations uh, with the West. It's simply for them, I, I don't believe it's worth it. And, but with that stated, in terms of even with Ukraine, we, we saw that um, China uh, naturally also noted the importance, uh, whether for Ukraine or for any country domicile globally, the need to protect multilateralism to an extent and protect the sovereign right of nations in terms of their territorial integrity. And, and so they've been uh, basically walking a tightrope, uh, dancing the line, whichever whichever trope one wants to use in, in this respect. And clearly they've, been, they've condemned the sanctions against Russia publicly in that respect, uh, in terms of um, basically presenting somewhat of a carrot to the Russian state um, that they're not in it alone in this period of much more significant isolation for the Russian government. And also noted that, um, that Russia's encroachment in the Ukraine from their standpoint um, that Russia has a right uh, to its own sphere of influence. The reason that China, of course, makes that statement is in part because China itself, under a more multipolar world, is also trying to dictate its sphere of influence. And so uh, whatever they project upon Russia is in, self, is in the end self-projection. And, and yes, in terms of um, whatever they were to state about Ukraine, is, is there some element of thinking about Taiwan in the back of one's mind. I, I imagine that's there to an extent. But I think importantly, in terms of not aggravating the West, China will not be, in terms of the speculation of, uh, about, about any military assistance to Russia in the conflict with, with the Ukraine, given how poorly this conflict is going for Russia, that is not going to happen to any significant extent. Uh, that would be automatic sanctioning and it simply is not worth it for China. So it, it is more about using one's words and rhetoric and maybe some economic arms as opposed to use of any form of more deliberate uh, hard power. And I would also state in this that in terms of China's positioning, that naturally when, when one thinks about Russia and Ukraine, one thinks about China and Taiwan. Um, given the history of, of Taiwan being a split off in the one China policy and, and Russia and, and the Russian government in terms of their, their vision of, of the rebuilding of, of the Soviet Union, at least, at least that from, from the president. But after the recourse, so after the ramifications rather um, for the Russian government, including the freezing of the reserves, the, the, the consideration around varying forms of embargoes of oil and natural gas and, and the like, I can only imagine that from the standpoint of the Chinese government, in terms of how much more significant from an economic standpoint, really bringing the Russian, a Russian economy to its knees 
um, this year in 2022 in terms of the consequences for the invasion. That whatever preconceptions that China might have had in terms of, well, this might serve as a test tube in terms of assessing exactly what the willpower of the West is in terms of protecting the, the post-Second World, World War multilateral order. I think the answer to that is that the response to the incursion in the Ukraine has been much more significant than anticipated. And that whatever preconceptions there might have been surrounding Taiwan, I, I can only think that there probably is a degree of second guessing around that. And probably that there will be no um, action that is more overt or deliberate towards Taiwan, including partially as, as consequence of the economic ramifications and China being a rather, rather eager uh, observer in terms of what those ramifications might be. Uh, anytime within a within a, within a near term uh, near term horizon, and that's even before President Biden um, talked around this point about potentially challenging the United States' uh, strategic ambiguity uh, in terms of its policy on Taiwan, talking uh, talking around possible uh, military port for Taiwan if there were to be any action taken on the part um, of the Chinese government. In part, um, the Chinese state knows that there have been different um, uh, institutions uh, such as the Australia, UK, and uh, US uh, security pact, such as the quadrilateral uh, security dialogue, um, institutions that ring fence, ring fence China, China in. Um, so there would be economic as well as security consequences based upon the actions that uh, and, and how significant actions and war in terms of the positioning on Russia. Um, from an economic standpoint, uh, we know that Russia, the trade of China with Russia increased a rather significant uh, 35% last year to 147 billion US dollars. On paper, that's significant. At the same time, that is still less than one-tenth of the trade of China with the European Union and the United States. In that respect, in terms of the, the, the balancing act between exactly how much one can walk the line with Russia absent the economic pain um, being much, much more, um, uh, one becoming much more cognizant of, those, uh, of that economic cost. Um, China, as the world's, it's being the world's largest trading nation and a pretty significant recipient of foreign investment, and one which has been something of, of a proponent, of an arbiter of protecting multilateralism. Um, especially during the Trump years, simply will, will not be taking steps um, that challenge that progress of the progress of China and the internationalization of, of the renminbi. Uh, and so in, in that respect, this uh, strategic ambiguity or strategic non-alignment in terms of playing different actors on the global stage against one another uh, will probably remain the story for the interim future. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, there is a strategic relationship there in order to bolster against Western hegemony, but which needs to be balanced against economic relations with the West as well. So you touched on the renminbi. First, I want to just pose one more question about sanctions on the topic of Ukraine and Russia. So there has been some speculation that Russia might seek to do a gold for renminbi swap with China, but it sounds, from what you've stated, it sounds like you don't think this would be very likely, or how do you accept? How do you assess the likelihood of this, and what would be the international consequences of directly undermining U.S. and European sanctions? So, I mean, 
of course, China has been one of the main, one of the main, maybe the main um, supporting actor or one in which um, obviously the, in terms of um, the consequences um, after the further invasion of the, of the Ukraine has been uh, potentially the most important proponent of the Russian government. Um, Russia holds 13% uh, roughly of its, uh, of its reserves are invested in Yuan assets. And in that respect, that's 13%, uh, which I suppose, thankfully, from the, from the standpoint of the Russian government and the, and the Kremlin, happens not to be frozen, which is convenient in, in this moment in which their um, external sector is being challenged by conditions, even, even with a rallying ruble. China and Russia have um, a swap agreement, a, a swap arrangement between renminbi and ruble signed many years ago, which has been rolled over um, of the amount of a titular 150 billion renminbi, which translates to upwards of 20 billion uh, US dollars to be able to gain access to one another's currency and to circumvent, um, circumvent the, the US dollar. In terms of the use of foreign exchange swap agreements between the central banks, um, whether that is with the backing, whether that is with the backing of Russia's gold reserves or not. I would, I would imagine that this, this has been and continues to be sought by, by the Russian government in terms of being able to supplement the remaining uh, liquid reserves of, of the country in, in foreign currency. At the same time, even though um, China wants to support Russia economically, uh, and as stated in terms of the commonality of the effort against US and dollar uh, hegemony. Um, at the same time, China wants to avoid any participation whatsoever in Western sanctions. And in that respect, we've already seen evidence of a degree of conservatism from Chinese financial institutions, uh, such as withdrawing the access to liquid liquid financing for the import of Russian commodities. In that respect, um, as well, even in terms of the currency swap arrangement, uh, the fact is, is that which, which came into place after the invasion of, of Ukraine in 2014, the, the annexation of, of Crimea, um, the fact is, is that we've seen that currency swap arrangement rather sparringly used. Uh, and that's in part because of the concern from counterparties on either side with respect to the possibility of sanctions, uh, in addition to other factors such as uh, any concern around the repatriation of capital from China. Great. So just to take a broader view of the renminbi, I suppose, you've already touched on this a bit, but it seems likely that the weaponization of the U.S. dollar and U.S. sanctions imposed on Russia, um, which we also saw with Iran and Afghanistan, are accelerating diversification of key currencies away from the U.S. dollar. So how do you assess the future of the renminbi as a reserve currency more broadly? Are we already in the era of de-dollarization? Do you anticipate that China may now move forward with alternative non-dollar payment mechanisms? The weaponization indeed. And so the, the sanctions, when I hear that word, the, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia have been surprising in that, in that initial period, just because of the degree of outpouring of international sympathy uh, for the Ukrainian shock uh, at what had simply what had transpired uh, at that scale the first time since the Second World War. And so in terms of the freezing of official reserves, in terms of the 
curtailment or the removal of multiple financial institutions from, from SWIFT. And currently, and I suppose uh, an important thematic longer term in terms of the consideration of the use of some of those frozen reserves for support in the reconstruction of, of the Ukraine and, and or for humanitarian, uh, humanitarian aid, building on the model of the use of uh, foreign exchange reserves um, held in the United States by Afghanistan, which were frozen after 9-11 and, um, and co-opted under the Biden administration, the, the use of $7 billion uh, US dollars of those reserves. And so in that respect, given how surprising this has been for the Russian government itself, which obviously did not expect it because otherwise the reserves would not have been in the United States, nor, nor in the Euro area for, for, that, for that matter, at least not to, to the significance that they were, um, that if it's surprising to, for much of the international community, uh, for, for the Russian state, for, for I assume for the Chinese state, that for many counterparties around the, world, around the globe, that hold reserves in the US dollar, but also other aligned allied states, um, other reserve currencies um, that have been sub that have been used during um, the conflict of Russia in terms of penalizing Russia and making sure this never happens again, such as in terms of the euro, such as pound sterling, such as the Japanese yen, other al aligned states um, uh, to the to the US for countries that park their reserves, uh, park their uh, foreign exchange reserves at, at varying central banks um, around the globe. Based upon what's occurred, I imagine uh, that that would present a degree of insecurity um, in terms of their feelings on how secure, how, um, and how much tolerance there would be, how much risk there would be if they were to cross any line in terms of following the general playbook of, of those as stated by Western liberal democracies. And so in that respect, um, global reserve managers, um, I, I assume probably will be continuing to pursue a degree of diversification uh, in terms of the currencies um, that they hold uh, said reserves uh, said reserves in. And as, be, as given additional impetus as, as obviously through the Western sanctions, banks identifying different financial counterparties than Western banks. The creation of platforms outside of Western clearinghouses for clearing and, and settlement, locating other um, vehicles than the US dollar for denomination and the execution of transactions. In this, we, we had taken a view from the rating agency, um, probably before it became more fashionable in terms of uh, some of the more recent discussion about the decline of the dollar and the like, that dollar hegemony was never was never perpetual. It, it never is. There is never a dollar uh, as the reserve currency infinitum into perpetuity. That's simply not how the global economic and financial system works. Um, not how hegemonic stability theory works. Even in, in the British pound was the reserve currency um, as of the 19th century entering the two world wars. And in that respect, in terms of the changes in, in the, and also in terms of the, the dominance of the dollar, um, there has been gradual attrition, um, still dominant by, by any, any manner of slicing it, still dominant, but at the same time, gradual um, being the core term, gradual attrition uh, from, in terms of the IMF data, from upwards of 71% of global allocated reserves 
as of the early 2000s to the, to the latest data, which had it at around 59%. Um, that gradual attrition um, potentially accelerated by the events since February of this year is likely to continue. And one beneficiary of this obviously would be in the long term, potentially renminbi. Now, the, the renminbi is still a young currency. Uh, I, think, I think we need to recognize that, which is that it's a currency which has only been in circulation for, at this stage, still under 75 years, uh, as issued by the, the People's Bank of China. And in terms of the internationalization efforts, in terms of the, when, that really, when one can really think that that would be a possibility, that China has enough soft power and economic power to, to internationalize its currency and that, that it would be accepted for payment, Given that that effort has only really existed for under 20 years at this stage in terms of a more overt and de deliberate objective of the Chinese state, I, in fact, would differ somewhat in, in, in my opinion from many who kind of state that, well, it's not really going that well. Uh, there have been many setbacks. Um, you know, look at the capital outflows and the like which have occurred um, as China tried to open its capital account to pursue internationalization and the like. Yes and no. There will always be bumps in the road, but tech, but uh, given the short space, given the short time window in which this has been um, a live objective, um, I look at the fact that the renminbi was included in the SDR basket um, since 2016. I look at the design of a renminbi-based uh, Shanghai oil futures market in 2018. I even look at the SWIFT data, uh, which is commonly cited that China only represents, the renminbi only represents 3% of global payments at the current moment. Yes, that is dwarfed by the US dollar, which is around 40% still at this stage. But compared to before COVID-19, when it was around 1.7%, that is still a, a fairly significant um, increase over the course of a short window of time. Uh, moving from sixth to fourth um, in terms of the use of yuan for global payments only behind the dollar, the euro, and the pound sterling. But I think over the long term, that path in terms of the internationalization is likely to continue to go, um, to continue to move in a favorable direction for China, I suppose, uh, probably with its, with its ups and downs, with setbacks and the like. Um, the rating B still at this moment is punching beneath its weight. The fact is, is that China is the world's largest exporter, and it has been the world's factory for a very long period of time now, um, representing about 30%, over 30% still of the world's manufacturing output. Um, so what that means is that China manufactures 10 times, so compared to the 3% of payments, China manufactures roughly 10 times the percentage of global goods as compared to the settlement of cross-border trade being done in its own currency. And as a result, in terms of the potential for the renminbi, that is still there. One among multiple vehicles in terms of the promotion of the renminbi are the alternative non-dollar payment mechanisms. We have the, uh, the cross-border um, international payment system, um, or, or SIPs, um, which came into being several years ago. Um, which is being pursued. Naturally, there are rightful questions about how ready or how developed and how trustworthy the system is. Um, at this point in time, it's still rather early days. 
Um, there are only roughly 75 participating banks um, that are paying vis-a-vis -vis the system, um, mostly being Chinese lenders, um, even though um, Russian banks have been, have been signed on. Um, but these are areas that ought to probably make ground with the passage of time. Right. So diversification is probably inevitable, and it seems like the renminbi is the most likely currency up to the task at this time. Uh, going to do what the euro couldn't. My final question is a forward-looking one. So you've mentioned soft power a bit, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Do you think that China's weakening economy, um, I mean, for the growth forecast is down once again this year, especially as the zero COVID policy continues um, for a, a number of other domestic reasons. Um, do you see this as undercutting its objectives in terms of soft power? And what is your outlook more generally regarding China's economy and future influence in the world? The, the weakening economy is important. And the Chinese government, the, the standing committee of the Politburo, will be highly sensitized to this. And, and that's, that's being made obvious in terms of the rollout of monetary and fiscal stimulus in terms of cushioning this, uh, this slowdown. In part, yes, uh, in terms of uh, because of the tie-in, um, especially for China, which is more along, it's more customary to pursue economic forms of colonialism and economic forms of power, as opposed to hard power per what we're seeing in the Ukraine. And this sensitization to the, to the quality and quantity of economic growth and the standing of the Chinese economy, the objective to double the size of the economy again by 2035 among, among many objectives of, of the Chinese state. That will be especially important uh, ahead of the National Congress later this year, um, by, by autumn of this year. And ahead of that Congress and the uh, expected anointment uh, and decision in favor of a so-called third term for President Xi, the, the theme of stability and the idea um, that China is back, that the Chinese economy has recovered from the embarrassment of the Wuhan, of the origination of the virus in Wuhan in that early January to February 2020 period. And similarly, in terms of COVID zero, that China, this is no longer the China of the insults from the Trump administration about the Wuhan virus, the China virus, and, and this, the Chinese economy is back. China has adopted a COVID zero policy as ill-conceived as it is at the current moment but has adopted a COVID zero policy and is the only country in the world to be able to control the Omicron variant and whatever. Th these kinds of reputational aspects are certainly going to be important entering into the National Congress um, as platforms um, that will be presented for the success of the Chinese nation and, and um, shoving aside of some of those embarrassing points as President Xi moves into his uh, third term. As, as noted, the, the Chinese economy is slowing. The IMF uh, has projected that uh, growth um, might uh, ease uh, this year uh, to 4.4%. Um, that's from the 8.1% last year uh, before a partial rebound uh, to 5.1% uh, uh, in 2023. Now, that 4.4% in and of itself in terms of the slowdown, will be in and of itself something of a sticking point, uh, which is the reason that 
stimulus uh, will be used to try to cushion the economy, preserve economic stability, but, but as well engineer somewhat higher economic growth. Um, the objective for this year was 5.5%. China had already missed its growth objective in 2020 for the first time for almost as long as one can remember. And as a result, in terms of missing it for a second year in three years, obviously that's not a particularly good look. But in terms of the, the long term, um, bridging past 2022 for a moment, the fact is, is that over the long term, um, that China is currently the second largest economy on the globe and on track to be the single largest economy on the globe um, over the course of the forthcoming years. And in that respect, the macroeconomic track record as well of China in terms of the, the economic miracle um, since the liberalization or the beginnings of the economic liberalization of the country and of the economy since 1978. These are forms of soft power that cannot be taken away in terms of the degree of influence that China exerts and also serving as a paragon, something of an example in terms of a developing country being able to break out of the trap, break out of the poverty trap and be able to do it on such significant scale, something which has not been done in the past, an economy of, of this size. For that long term, very important for China in terms of the path that China is going to be on is preserving a so-called soft landing to the significant debt accrual of China. I believe that's one of the main challenges for the country in terms of looking at the slowdown, in terms of looking at the real estate sector correction, um, in terms of looking at events such as Evergrande and before that Huarong and the like, that in terms of the debt due to mismanagement of the economy for a period of time, uh, most significantly after the global, during and after the global financial crisis in terms of the scale of debt that had been accrued, to be able to continue the transition in the financial system in terms of um, enhancing financial supervisory, in terms of tolerating more significant corporate default. Uh, we've already seen multiple years in which defaults have exceeded 100 billion uh, US dollars um, in terms of a managed process, um, in terms of managing credit, uh, managing credit growth, as well as bubble risk. Um, some of these elements are crucial um, for China. Um, in addition to elements such as opening the capital account and, and continuing to pursue the internationalization of, of the currency. When we look at it in the past, in terms of the influence that China will exert 10, 20, 30 years from today, the outstanding question is that there have been past challengers to the United States, US-centered order to the US dollar. Um, one example that certainly one harkens to, the, uh, in terms of the easiest, would be to the rivaling of the United States during the 1980s from Japan. And at, at that time, in terms of considering the soft power of the Japanese economy at that moment. And in the end, what China needs to be attentive to in terms of the path that it's on is naturally to avoid the hard landing to the economy um, from debt and a financial crisis, something that Japan has never truly recovered from. And so in that respect, uh, given that China seems to be turning the corner, uh, naming financial system risk as one of the three critical battles of the nation, since 2018 and paying the rightful attention to managing that financial risk, there is reason for cautious optimism 
at least over a longer run horizon. But that's not to state that there are not challenges. Sounds like a few short-term difficulties, but a rosier long-term outlook given some important course corrections. So great, thank you very much. On that note, I'd like to uh, thank you once again, Dennis, for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing your insights. And I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to OMFIF Podcasts on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF Podcast.